comes from 2 Peter chapter 3, and it says verses 1 and 2. And I started out the study with verses 1 and 2, and I realized, as if you read my note I sent out last night, there is only six pages in the study guide, but we've been having 14 to 19 pages in the study guide. I know that some of you have picked up on the statement that I make from time to time that the shorter outline, the longer the sermon. Now, the reason for that is there's more ad lib. If, uh, if the outline's short, then the ad lib. If you look at the study guide for today, you'll recognize that I did cut it down to one verse, but I mentioned there were 21 different instructions that are given to us. Now, I looked at the outline this morning. It said 20, so I had to add one more. Uh, so I would be uh, truthful in that. But in this statement that we have titled our study today, Stirring Up Your Minds by Way of Remembering, it's good that remember that we remember that we can tell it to Jesus, that we have a, a friend in Jesus, and that there is power and presence in prayer. And uh, then we'll close it off when we all get to heaven. We'll have all the answers and, and cover all that out. But it's important for us to remember the Word of God. Peter begins, This second epistle, beloved, I write unto you in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. As we move into the third chapter of Second Peter, the apostle inserts then a reason, a purpose, for writing both epistles. He's attempting to stir up our minds by way of remembrance. Now he inserts the word pure to stir up our pure minds by way of remembrance. Peter is going to embark on teaching concerning the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He'll point out in the chapters that we are beginning to study that scoffers, those that are out to satisfy their own lust pattern, and they will attempt to dissuade others from the faith and so he closed the second chapter of the epistle by warning concerning the false teachers and the false uh, leaders that desire to make merchandise. They desire to make a profit off of believers. And so before he goes on to talk about the inability on the part of those who do not have the Spirit of God, he will call those to whom he is writing, the recipients of this epistle, he will call us back to his purpose for writing the epistles, not only the second epistle, but he alludes to the first as well, of first and second Peter. So this morning, let's allow him to stir up our minds by remembering. Now, that in itself is an interesting phrase, to stir up 
your pure minds. Let's look at it. He said, The second epistle, Beloved, I write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. He begins then with this second epistle, identifying the document that he has written or is in the process of writing as he makes this comment and is going to be distributed to the new believers as they have been forming into small groups into churches, uh, uh, in uh, various places, the Word of God, by the time Peter writes this, has penetrated all the known countries of the world. Of course, that all happened in one day, on the day of Pentecost. I hear prophets, today's self-appointed prophets, that say, oh, Christ can't come back yet because... The Word of God has not gone out to the entire world, and the entire world has to know. Well, Paul said, the Word of God has gone out to every nation under heaven. And it occurred to begin with on the day of Pentecost in 30 A.D. when God sent the Holy Spirit and uh, the church age began we are told in Scripture, and if Scripture is true, then we are told that there were in Jerusalem Jews out of every nation under heaven that heard the gospel in their own native tongues, whatever country they had come from, they heard the gospel in their own tongues, spoken by Galileans who could only speak normally. They could only speak one language, and that was Aramaic, and it was an Oklahoma version of that. They knowed it and seen it and didn't care what you thought about it. But that day, they spoke in the known languages of the world. So the Word of God, the message of salvation, the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ became knowledge in all the countries of the world. It has repeatedly been evangelized from time to time throughout this period of time. So Peter says this second epistle, I wrote you earlier, but this second epistle, and he says, uh, he identifies the recipients as beloved. Agapetoi is the Greek word it's a pronoun that identifies uh, uh, an, a, a direct address to those who are loved. And one might say that Peter was writing to those he loved, but more emphatically, we can ascertain that Peter was writing to those that Jesus loved. For God so loved the world and gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. They, are, We are beloved of the Lord. The Apostle John was so impressed by the love of God and manifest in the person and in the character of the Lord Jesus Christ that in his writing he refers to himself as the beloved 
apostle. However, the word the is a little misleading. He was not singling himself out as being the one that was beloved by the Lord Jesus Christ, but among those who are loved by the Lord Jesus Christ. He was overwhelmed with the sacrificial grace concept of love that Jesus manifested in that while we were yet sinners, He died for us. So this epistle, this letter is being sent out according to Peter to those that are loved of God, those that Christ loves. He says, now I write unto you. Uses the present tense to indicate I am presently writing this second epistle to you. And I'm going to explain the reason for my writing. But he makes the notation in which, he says, in which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. You'll notice in your English translation of uh, uh, the Bible that it says in both. And both is in brackets. This is a reference to his first epistle. Though he doesn't write that out in detail, it becomes uh, recognizable to us because he uses the plural form of the word epistle. He's not talking about the singular epistle that he has written, but he says in which... And because he uses the, the plural in that statement concerning the uh, reference to my writing, and my writing to this is my first epistle and my second epistle to you uh, are written, both of them, in order that I might stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. I want to point out that this epistle, the word epistle is feminine in the Greek text. Now, the gender of the word, as you have been told before, and it doesn't irk me to remind you, that the gender of the word has grammatical significance. If you were to pick up a grammar from some Greek, course that was being offered today, uh, that grammar might say there was a point in which uh, uh, the gender of the word uh, was had a grammatical effect, but that's been lost. I don't think it's been lost so much as it's been abandoned. I, I'm hard-pressed to find any modern Greek grammar that exposes what happened back in the 3rd and the 4th centuries. In the 3rd and the 4th centuries, there was an attempt to revive uh, classical Greek. It had kind of fallen by the wayside, and so there was a concentrated effort uh, by uh, the linguist of that day to bring back an understanding of classical Greek. 
in the process of reviving classical Greek, they revised Koine Greek. Now, when when we speak about English, you'll recognize that that there's a difference between American English and English English. If you go to the United Kingdom, you'll find a difference in what we call English. The English would call it American uh, rather than English. Uh, there's certainly a difference in uh, pronunciation and other aspects of it. But there was, when Alexander the Great designed the language of Koine Greek, and I simply remind you of this because I think it's important for us to understand the language that when Alexander the Great set out to conquer the world, the first thing he did was unite all of the peninsula of Greece. Uh, that that nation was not much of a nation. They were city-states. And they were governed by uh, the the one that had the power of the authority in that particular city, uh, Alexander's father uh, had set out to unite all the peninsula and and did a pretty good job of it. And then Alexander came along and uh, picked up the pieces of it and put it together. And now he united all of the peninsula of Greece and he said, we're going to go out and we're going to conquer the world. He realized as he began to lay out the plan that they had a problem. The problem was one of language because uh, there were five different types of Greek that were being spoken on the Greek peninsula at that time. Five different structures of grammar, five different definitions of words. And so being a military word, a man, he wanted, uh, when he gave a command, for it to be understood exactly. So he devised the most exact language that's ever been developed. Now I continue to say that until someone calls me to task on it because with modern linguists and with the computer uh, world uh, that we live in today, uh, there may be a development of a more exact language, but it seems like we're going the opposite direction uh, when one party in our nation wants to redefine all of the words that are in the English dictionary and give them a meaning when, as we we mentioned, the uh, newest uh, member of the Supreme Court said she could not define the word woman. So we're probably not going to get uh, a most exact language uh, in my last lifetime. But when Alexander gave a command or an instruction to his generals and his troops, he wanted it understood exactly what he meant by that command. So he developed, taking the five basic Greek languages, he developed the most exact language uh, called Koine Greek, and the word Koine means common. It's anything but common in its development. The, the grammatical rules and the uh, rules that govern the exceptions to the rules and the rules that govern those exceptions uh, gets pretty intense, uh, but is understandable. And that became the language of the New Testament. Though the Romans had overthrown the Greeks, 
Koine Greek continued to be the language of literature, and I personally believe by God's design, the language was given so that we might be able to have His Word, the New Covenant, the New Testament, in an exact language that we might understand and be able to relate. Now, not all preachers, uh, not all linguists uh, uh, agree with me on that point, and they want to interpret it uh, a little looser. Uh, and then we get into real trouble. That's where all the different doctrines and interpretations result in doctrine, and that's where they've originated. So I found it simple in my early childhood just to accept the Koine Greek as being exact as it was designed to be, and that God said exactly what he wanted to say within it. So in the gender, all of that was free. That wasn't part of the study today. The gender of the word epistle is feminine. That means this epistle was written in response to a need. Peter recognized there were false teachers that were going around and they were teaching falsely and especially in the area of prophecy, they were prophesying falsely, and that there were many that had entered the field of the clergy, whatever that word means in our society today, but they had entered into uh, that expressed ministry in order to make a profit off of believers. So he said, I have written this epistle, And then he tells us in both these epistles, he has written them in response to a need. The need is for sound, clear doctrine, for the truth that emanates from God to be visible to you and to me, as well as to those in the day Peter wrote the epistles. He said, in both of these, I have written them in order that I might stir up your pure minds. Stir up. Dagairo means to keep awakening. It's, it's in the present tense. He's not doing it just once, but continuously awakening your pure minds. Now the word pure is translated from the Greek word aliquine, and uh, I've translated it unadulterated. It is not mixed with anything else. What Peter is delivering is being delivered to their pure minds. Well, that causes a question then. Their minds are, are unadulterated. They don't have impure a false doctrine or teaching there. No, he's trying to stir up that area where there is truth and to bring that truth constantly to the surface so that they might work out the process. He's not talking so much as what's in the mind as the process of thought and the use of the mind. We have seen in our previous studies that knowledge, comprehension, 
occurs in our left frontal lobe. We're not cognizant of that perhaps as we go throughout a time of reading or study or listening, uh, developing knowledge, but it's formulated in the left front part of the human brain. That concept, however, does not generate action until our free will gets involved with it. Our volition or our free will makes a choice as we are exposed to knowledge, especially as we are exposed for the first time to something new. Our processing of that information, our understanding what is being said, our comprehension, all occurs in the left frontal lobe, but our behavior is dictated from the right frontal lobe. So as we rear our children, we try to instruct them in the way of God and in the truth from God's Word. We impart to them knowledge and they process that and hopefully we provide an environment to help them process that. But there needs to be an understanding of how that process translates from information to action. And that process is mixing what we hear, what we learn, mixing that with faith, accepting it to be a standard, accepting it to be a norm, accepting it to be a guideline for our lives. Hearing the Word of God will not change our lives. It provides the basis by which our lives can be changed, but it's applying, accepting as truth, and applying that which changes our behavior. That's where the information is moved from the left frontal lobe over to the right frontal lobe. It's that process that Peter's talking about. There is a pure process that God has designed. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, but faith is a dependency, a reliance upon. So as we hear the Word of God, as we learn the Word of God, we then must make a decision concerning what we are going to do with that. Are we going to accept it? Are we going to apply it? Are we going to make that a standard or a guide for our life? It's that process that is unadulterated. God has set forth a principle by which we can turn His Word into our behavior through faith in what He has said. And so the word minds, dianoia, is a thought process. That dia is a preposition that identifies through. It's thinking it through. It's following through with what we have learned and making it a part of our life. The norms and standards, the thought of thinking it through and to application in our lives. So he says, both of these epistles I have written that I might keep awakening this unadulterated thought process by which you turn what God has revealed 
into action and behavior in your life by way of remembrance. By way of remembrance. I do a lot of repetition. You may have picked up on that. That you hear things over and over again. And it's because I understand that retention comes through repetition. And there is a need for us to stir up your thought processes by way of remembrance. By way, Peter said, of remembrance. A reminder to you that that process might be carried full through from understanding to application, from belief to action in your daily walk of life. I have said in your hearing, no doubt, that if you want to inventory what you really believe, you want to be able to identify what you really believe, then you need to inventory your behavior. Because your behavior reflects what you have accepted as truth and what you are making applicable to your life and doing Carrying out that process then determines what you truly believe. Oh, we say we believe, we have a head knowledge of it, but if it hasn't affected our behavior, then we have not truly believed it. So Peter says, this second epistle, beloved, I keep writing to you in both, which I keep awakening your thought process in the sphere of and by means of a reminder. Here's a list of that which Peter wants to remind us of in these epistles. The central truth that Peter establishes is that we have changed citizenship as believers. And we could say, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through, my treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. We are ambassadors for Christ. The word Peter uses is we are sojourners. If I were to ask for a definition of sojourner, I won't do that because I don't want to be disappointed, but I hopefully would get from you a response, a sojourner is a foreigner not living in his own country, but living alongside the locals in order to do business for the king, for the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That's the focus of Peter's message in both these epistles, is to remind us we are foreigners not living in our own country, citizens of the kingdom of God, but left here, appointed here, as sojourners to live alongside the locals to do the business for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Peter establishes in his letters that believers are the elect of God. That is, the chosen ones of God. And the scripture lays that out, that we are chosen ones according to the foreknowledge of God the Father 
through the sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Much confusion in our Christian world today concerning the elect of God. There's a a new surge uh, among those who believe that uh, the doctrine of election would include the idea that we have no capacity for making a choice to choose God unless God selected us in eternity past to be among the saved and gives us a spirit so that we can understand salvation and accept salvation. And if God gives you that spirit, you can't deny it, you can't reject it, you don't have an option in it, and you don't have the option of being those that God would select. I tell you, it nauseates me when I hear that kind of false theology because that would make God a monster. And if I believed that, I would be prone to throw in my lot with the others and see if we couldn't overthrow a God that had that kind of attitude. Praise God, I don't have to worry about that because the Scripture is explicit. If we harmonize Scripture, that we are chosen by God by His foreknowledge, according to the foreknowledge of God. God knew in eternity past those who would respond to His gospel if they were presented His gospel, and He guarantees, He predestines them to get the gospel. There are people who have never heard of Jesus Christ, who have never heard the gospel, but it's because in God's foreknowledge He knows they would not respond positively and he's not assumed a responsibility to get them that information. But those he knows will, he has accepted the responsibility, and he gets the message to them. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctification, the setting apart of the Holy Spirit, unto the obedience and the application of the acceptance of the blood of Jesus Christ for our salvation we are saved. Peter wants to remind us of that. Thirdly, Peter affirms that the believer has been regenerated in a living confidence through the means of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are new creatures, a new creation in Christ Jesus. We now have a body, a soul, and a spirit, and we are able now to understand spiritual truth and spiritual phenomena. Fourthly, Peter wants us to be reminded we have an inheritance. That is an inheritance that is incorruptible. You can't corrupt your inheritance. I aggravated my dad by starting a church that was not a Southern Baptist affiliated church. And my inheritance became corrupted. There was the threat of taking me out of the will, but he relented short of that and took me out as the executor of the will and put my brother in the will. There is nothing we can do that will endanger our inheritance that is in Christ Jesus 
because He provided for that to begin with. And in childlike faith, we accepted it. And in that moment of acceptance, that moment of time, this this is so fascinating in the Word of God, that moment of time was taken out of time, divorced from time, perpetuated forever. It can't be changed. God couldn't change it? No, God won't change it. Because He has committed Himself to it. So, it's an inheritance that is incorruptible. It will not fade away. It is kept by the power of God. It is the basis of our rejoicing even in the midst of continual trials and afflictions that we might encounter. Our inheritance is sure. Peter goes on to remind us that life is short, but the Word of God endures forever. Therefore, our, our, the basis for our action and our behavior needs to be upon the Word of God. Peter continues that we are to lay aside the filth of this world and we are to desire the Word of God. Amos said in his day, there is a famine of the Word of God. And we're living in a day of famine when the Word of God is not the central focus and teaching of the Word of God has been substituted for storytelling, where the motive is upon motivation, where the objective is to motivate people to certain behavior rather than instruct them in the mechanics and the way that we can accomplish that. We are to lay aside the filth of this world and we are to desire the sincere Word of God, as a baby desires the sincere milk, we are to desire the sincere Word of God. Peter identifies that we are living stones. We're part of the building, but we are living stones and we are to live out the design in the living temple of God that has been given to us. Peter identifies that we are a chosen race. We have become foreigners. We are a chosen race. We are a holy ethnic group, and we are a people of his own possession. A dot encompassed by the circle is that word periusion that is used there. Peter identifies and reminds us that we are to be in submission to the authorities God has established And we've seen in the past few years with this COVID thing, this attempt on the part of one divine institution to interfere in the area of another divine institution while we are to recognize the authorities that God has established, we are to keep them in their own divine institution. Government has its role. It has no role in the church and no authority over the church. We need to recognize that those times of challenge are going to increase according to Peter's writing to us about the last days. We are to be submissive to the authorities within the structure of each divine institution. And where one conflicts with the other, God is supreme. Peter then says that we are 
to be reminded to use our freedom with discretion. That we need to recognize that freedom and operate in it, but to not use it to the downfall or the detriment of someone else that is around us that may be observing our life. Peter goes on to remind us that we are to have both an agape love. Oh, that's easy to have an agape love. But then he adds, and a phileo love for other believers. I started out early in my ministry said, I have to love them, but I don't have to like them. Well, that shows how ignorant I was of the Word of God. Because the phileo love identifies that aspect of our liking them. We don't have to like their ways, but we have to have an appreciation for their value before God. And we are to love them with a self-sacrificial love. And we are to respond to them with a responsive love to their needs. Peter reminds us that we are to bear up without complaining even when we suffer unjustly. Peter reminds us that husbands and wives are to live out the roles that God has designed for them. I don't know how a society that can't differentiate between a male and a female, between a husband and a wife, are going to make that kind of distinction and bring any normality to a society but we are to live out our godly designed roles. Peter says we are to conduct ourselves properly. And he identifies that we are to be like-minded. That is, we are to have one focus of thought, having compassion, being sympathetic, being courteous, not rendering evil for evil, keeping our tongues and lips from being a baited trap for others. Find happiness in suffering for conformity to God's plan. Find happiness in our suffering for our conformity to God's plan. Always have a reason for those that ask you about your faith. Stop living according to the lust of the flesh. Notice he says stop. He assumes that we are. Be good stewards of the specific spiritual gifting that God has given us for our role in ministry. Elders are to feed the flock out of the genuine service of God and not for money's sake. Those in the church are to be in submission to the elders in uh, the ministry of the church work and church ministry. We are to cast all our anxiety on the Lord. That means stop worrying. We are to be mentally alert because the devil is roaming around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Peter goes on to remind us that we are to become co-participants of a divine nature. It is to begin with faith where we place our weight and our dependency upon the Lord and His Word, and in the context of this second epistle, upon the promises of God. 
upon that faith or within that faith, we are to add a moral behavior that others will respect. Within that moral behavior, we are to seek knowledge through inquiry and investigation. Within that sphere of knowledge, we are to exhibit self-control, yielding to the Holy Spirit. And within that area of yielding to the Holy Spirit and maintaining self-control, we are to be satisfied regardless of our circumstances. Within that sphere of self-satisfaction, we are to maintain a consistency in our duty to God and exhibit within that brotherly love so that we might develop agape love. We are to avoid cunningly devised fables and false doctrines. We are to make our calling sure. That is, we are to understand what our gift in the body of Christ is, what our ministry is, and to live that out. We're to remember that Scripture is not a private interpretation. We are to go with what God said, not how we want to interpret it preacher knew that he had in his congregation a a chicken thief, and so he preached against stealing. He used that passage of Scripture that says, let him that steal, steal no more, rather let him labor working with his hands. He addressed the young man as he went out the door. He said, what did you think about my sermon today? And he said, pastor, you read the Scripture wrong. It doesn't say, you you said it says, let him that steals, steal no more. No, it says, let him that steals, steal no more, let him labor working with his hands. We can oftentimes interpret the scripture to say what we want it to to say instead of what God has said. We need to learn to recognize false teachers and might I tell you, You cannot recognize false doctrine if you don't know genuine doctrine. It's only in those areas that we know what God has said that we are defensive and therefore we need to study to show ourselves approved unto God, workmen that need not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The 21st one is remember. Remember these things and order to make application. So with that background, we are now ready to continue the third chapter of Second Peter. And in this third chapter, Peter will provide motivation for following the things that he has been instructed to remind us of. And the reality, eternity is coming. It may seem like he's not coming again. It's been 10,000 years. Where is His coming? But Peter reminds us He is coming again. God's timetable is vastly different than ours. He's eternal. No beginning and no ending. No time. The only reason we have time is for us. He established it and created it. But He operates outside of those perimeters. He is coming according to His promise. So don't get discouraged. 
Don't get sucked into false teaching. Don't get fixated on the troubles you have and just want to run to Jesus with it. Run to His Word. Run to His book. The instructions are there. The guidelines are there. We're examining them Sunday after Sunday. But of course, it all begins at salvation. The Bible says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Bible says, With the heart man believes unto righteousness, but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let us be committed to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.